Please turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 17, the Gospel of John and the 17th chapter. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John and concentrating in these weeks on this, the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we may accurately call the Lord's Prayer. This one is uniquely His. It is for us something of a foretaste of what our Lord is engaged now in doing at the right hand of the Father. Whether He is actually speaking words of prayer or not may be debatable, but his very presence in glory as our high priest who in his body presents us and our needs to his Father are reflected in these words. His spirit and his request, his very presence there is embodied in what we read here. What is it that he stands for and sets for and uh, implores his Father on our behalf for? It's found in this prayer. Great encouragement to God's people. A great sobering eye-opener to those who are strangers to grace. Now we have divided up this prayer into several sections. First, we considered the address of the Lord in the prayer in this first verse when he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... And then we've considered that the rest of this, sect, this prayer is divided up into three requests. First, the petition of Christ for himself. Second, his prayer for his apostles. And third, his request for the church universal. And then at the end, there's a brief word of conclusion appropriate to the prayer. Now, now we are considering this first of the divisions of his prayer, the prayer of Christ for himself. And we've divided it up into two petitions, and they are these. He first prays for his own glory, as we'll read in this first verse, Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. And in that statement are the two petitions of Christ for himself. Glorify thy Son, and through that glorifying of thy Son, may his being glorified glorify thee, his Father. And then we suggested that there are four pleas or arguments related to these two petitions of Christ. First, as he makes this request of his Father to glorify himself and to glorify his Father, it is rooted in the intimate and endearing relation in which he stands with his Father. Father, glorify thy Son. And we consider this matter of the special and unique and tender relationship between Christ and his Father under the heading of the address of the prayer. But the second argument that the Lord employs 
for being heard in his dual petition of his own glory and his Father's glory, is that the appointed time for the granting of this petition has arrived. When he says, the hour is come. That's the reason why it's time to ask that the Father now glorify because it is the appropriate hour. It is the fullness of time brought about by God's sovereign rule, providence, and will. Throughout history, he has arrived at that hour in which he is to be glorified through his death and thereby to glorify his Father. And then two other arguments for this petition, the appropriateness of granting this petition because of Christ's authority. The Father gave him authority over all flesh in verse 2. And so it's appropriate that Christ be glorified in this hour so that he may execute that authority which has been given him and accomplish that purpose for which he's been given his mediatorial rule and reign and authority. And then finally, the petition is argued from the ground that all the necessary preparations and prerequisites for the granting of these petitions have been accomplished. When he says in verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him he should give eternal life, then he describes eternal life and defines it. And then in verse 4 he says, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So it's right for you, Father, now to heed my petition and grant that I may now be glorified so that in my glorification you may be glorified because of these four arguments. Now we are considering and focusing our study now upon the second of these four arguments, the hour is come. And we've been considering this for several weeks and opening up this statement, the hour is come. And what we're going to do today, hopefully if time allows, is further open up this hour and then by doing that lead into our consideration of the granting of his request that God glorify himself by glorifying his Son. And if the Lord will this morning, I intend to deal with, toward the end of our message, his purpose for this hour in glorifying his Father. But you'll remember that as we've broken up this hour and opened up this concept of the hour has come, we first identified the hour. The hour is come. What hour? The hour for Christ death and his saving of his people from their sins. And then we opened up the concept that this hour was of divine design. There's a reason the hour had come. It is because it was God's purpose that this hour come. God brought this hour. Nothing could keep it from happening. God's power as God saw to it that his son arrived at the right moment to save his people from their sins. And then the last time we considered some of the things involved in this hour or surrounding this hour, things that the Lord surely understood and comprehended and anticipated. And we enumerated several. He knew before time that he was going to be forsaken of his own. Both the disciples and Judah, who was a false apostle, 
were to forsake him, betray him. And he knew it ahead of time. And yet here he says, the hour is come. And he faced it. Second, he understood that he was going to be persecuted by his enemies. And the bitter pill to swallow of these wretched sinners mocking him, spitting upon him, ridiculing him, hurting him, putting him to death. He knew it was coming and he looked at it in the eye and approached it with courage. In the third place, he understood that he was about to be humiliated by the powers of darkness. The devil was about to have his day as he said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And finally he knew that in this hour he was going to be rejected by the Father whom he so dearly loved. His very Father to whom now he's addressing his petition in unbroken intimate unity which reaches back into all eternity. That relationship which grounds the right of his request being honored is about to be severed in a way that we cannot even explain. When upon the cross he is forced to cry out after he bears the load of our sin on his holy shoulders, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he understands that surrounding this hour is this dreaded forsaking of his own beloved Father against him as our sin-bearer. But today I want to continue in this in two other ways. I want to open up also the principle of the devil's opposition to this hour and then the Lord's welcome commitment to this hour. And in the doing of that second one, I want us to consider more perfectly this getting glory to God in his death. Now, before we open up those two points, again read with me these first few verses of John chapter 17. These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee even as thou gavest him authority over all flesh, that to all whom thou hast given him, he should give eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Again, please join me as we engage our hearts together in crying to God to open our hearts to his word and his word to our hearts. Let us pray. How feeble and how needy and how weak we are, O Lord. And you know that we are full of sin. And in the words of the Apostle, which we agree with, we are sold under sin. We are living in these bodies of bondage to death. And we find that though we delight after your holy law in the inward man, 
There is within every one of us another law warring in our members, the law of sin and death. And we come this morning, O Lord, covered with the remains of our corruption that you can see. And yet, O God, we are bold to ask blessing and to ask you to speak your word to our hearts, which is an unspeakable privilege that we have, not because we think that we have arrived at overcoming our sins or that we bring to you spotless vessels in ourselves, but because we also have been clothed on top of all that by the perfect righteousness of your Son. And when you look upon us as justified in his blood, you see us as righteous, though it's not our own righteousness, but his, you see. And, O God, how encouraging it is to us that it is his righteousness by which you judge us, for his is perfect and acceptable and satisfactory to you. And so in his name we now ask that you in grace, as we've known you to be, not to be presumptuous, we ask that you again in mercy may show your power and your mercies to us in giving us ears to hear your word and ministering to us with a focused heart the truths of the scripture. Oh God, may you help us now liberate our lips, give us conciseness and clarity of word, utterance and boldness, and a hearing heart. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 I want to open up further as we consider the things around this hour and the things relating to this hour that's come. In the first place, the devil's opposition to the hour. Now, we've hinted at this in our introductory remarks in past weeks, but it bears a further and deeper analysis because many of you who are followers of Christ live with an opponent, an adversary, one who is committed against you. If God be for us, the Scripture says, who can be against us? Who is he that condemns, the scriptures ask. We have been joined to the love of God in Christ. Who can separate us? Can principalities or powers? And the implication in all those questions is that there is a principality and power. There is a spiritual being who is our opponent. And as we live our lives, we should not be unduly shocked by all of his wiles and his ways at thwarting the purposes of God in every one of our lives. It is because we often forget his presence and his commitment against us that we grow disillusioned, and we get discouraged, and we don't understand why things are so difficult. Well, one reason they're so difficult is because the devil, the arch-ancient enemy of Christ, is at l in wrath against us and is opposed to us and is fighting us because he wants to devour our souls and lead us to the pit where we will be the companions of every vile thing about which we read earlier. The devil's opposition to the hour. And I'm just going to mention three ways in which we see his opposition and understand more of what it was our great champion did for us in overcoming the opposition of Satan. First, 
He opposed the Lord and this hour by direct temptation. Temptation directly brought to Christ was the devil's way of opposing this hour and attempting to prevent it. I believe the devil did not want the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer for your sins. Now there's a mystery in this. And I'm not sure how to explain it or understand it, but I think there is an element here in the demons that they do not want your salvation accomplished this way. I won't go further and say that, say more than that, but I believe that's the case. You recall the direct temptation of Christ in the wilderness when the Spirit led him to the wilderness for a time of trial and to put him in a situation in which the devil was going to tempt him. And you remember that threefold temptation exhibited in the Gospels, where in one case he was, uh, after 40 days of fasting, having not eaten for 40 days, he began to hunger, meaning his flesh, his body, truly now was entering that stage of starvation when without food he would die. That's what it means, began to hunger. It doesn't mean he began to feel stomach uh, growling. You're not hungry when your stomach's growling. You are truly hungry when your stomach has shrunk up so much that it doesn't even growl anymore. And your body's already burned up all of its residual energy and fat and eaten all of its own self. And what actually happens, I understand, and uh, some others may correct this, but I believe I've read and understand that your body begins literally to feed on itself and to burn up its remaining real protein life so that there's no reserve to feed it. Most of us in this place could live a while without any extra food. We got enough taped onto us that we could burn it up and go a while. It wouldn't be hard for some of us. It might be painful, but it wouldn't hurt us or do great damage, most of us. But the Lord, after the 40 days, was truly hungry, beginning to starve to death. And then the devil came and pointed at some stones and said, Turn these to bread. Now, we don't have time to examine it, but you can see that's a strong temptation. He is able to turn them to, br to bread. He can raise up from those stones children of Abraham, much less to make them bread. He makes bread out of dirt all the time. Farmers plant these little seeds and they die, and out of them sprout up these little things, the stalks, and on the end, these little clusters of things that are more seeds and people get them and grind them up and they blow off some stuff and they grind it up some more and they rub it all together and they mix it with some water and some other stuff and out comes bread. God's been doing this. He can do it. And so the devil tempts him. Remember, what is he tempting him to do? Well, among other things, he's tempting the Savior to deliver himself by carnal means. Now, how do we know that's the temptation? Because the Lord's response to it. Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, in the midst of this apparent utter crisis, in which if I don't eat, I'm going to die, I see past this present crisis, and I know that the root and the source of my life goes way beyond bread. You want me to resort to misusing my divine power for my own selfish ends and lose sight of my eternal goal. 
carnal deliverance. Short-sighted solution. One of the typical temptations Christ endured throughout his days in the flesh among us. Short-term solution to eternal questions. But the Lord sees through it. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now he recognizes that you need bread in this body. But he also recognizes that to use illegitimate means to get bread is displeasing to God. And what's more important is not feeding your starving body, but supplying the needs of your starving soul. And you can't live by bread to do that. Bread can never do it. You've got to have more than that. And so he resists that temptation by his understanding and recitation of God's word regarding how we really live, what the source of our life really is. The devil's trying to get him to step down off his throne of spiritual kingdomship and to give up his accomplishment of his kingdom in spiritual means and to resort to the temporal and the carnal, the wisdom of this world. You see it? We'll move on. The other temptation, when he gave him opportunity to cast himself down off the pinnacle of the temple and said, hey, the scriptures say, and the devil quotes the Bible to him, he shall, his angels shall bear thee up, that thou dash not thy foot against the stone. And he quotes Psalm 91. The devil knows enough scripture to twist you all in all sorts of directions. Get up on the temple, dive off, and prove you're the Son of God and use your power and your favor with the Father to get deliverance and more the people are going to be impressed with that. There are lots of implicit temptations here. Basically, though, it's the use of his position for frivolous and personal gain, for his own glory and advancement, and it's a tempting of God, the same temptations of the wilderness. Try to prove that God really is true to his word. Lord, if you're really true to your word, you'll give us meat to eat. If you're really true to your word, we'll get water. If you're really true to your... Continually testing God, rather than believing his word, prove it, prove it, prove it, and presume upon him. And the Lord Jesus resisted as you know that. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then in the third place, the devil asked him if he would bow down to be overt, Frontal the talk. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Remember, he took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all that he could give him. Worship me and you'll get it all. The Lord God you shall worship and him only shall you serve was the response. Here is the temptation for the Lord Jesus to receive an earthly kingdom and to have the world without death. Avoid the suffering. Take it all now. You deserve it. Now, there are lots of other temptations implicit. The thought that the devil has the power to give it. The implicit half-truths and lies built in. But the Lord is being tempted, as it were, in every one of these things to short-circuit his primary mission to get to the cross and deliver you from your sins. If in any one of these he sins, you can't be saved. There's no one else that can save you. If in any one of these he uses his messiahship wrongly, for the wrong purpose, to the wrong end, your salvation is hopeless. And the devil is thwarting this hour of his saving his people 
through the direct temptation and the frontal attack. There was also, though, in the second place, temptation through others. It's not always the devil walking up to you and saying, I'm the devil. In fact, in our case, more often he comes clothed as an angel of light. He appears to be a servant of God. More frequently than not, your closest friends, your family members, folks you know, people with whom you work and attend school. Remember Matthew 16? When the Lord began to tell the disciples on a regular and increasingly frequent basis, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men, he's speaking of the Son of Man. The one who, according to the Old Testament scriptures, was going to come into clouds of glory and wipe out the enemies of God's people. Now he's telling them, this Son of Man, who's coming in judgment to judge the world, is going to first be delivered up into the hands of sinful men. He's not going to destroy them, they're going to destroy him. He's going to suffer many things of the chief priests and the Gentiles, and they're going to put him to death, and the third day is going to rise. And remember what Peter did. He began to say, took him aside, and got him away from the others, and remember the, the argument, Lord, be it far from you that you, son of man, should suffer. Don't die. How did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. The devil himself was tempting Christ through this plea of a close friend and associate who loved him not to go to the cross. Who are you, the Son of Man, to die? You have a right to rule this rotten world. Are you going to submit to these wicked people and let them kill you? The last thing on earth that we must allow to happen. It took a long time for Peter to get this out of his system. But the Lord saw the source of that temptation. The devil. Get behind me, Satan. Some of you in this place need to see the source of some of the statements made to you by your friends and family. You need to get rid of some of your American softness and your fear of saying anything that sounds negative. And you need to learn how, in a holy way, at the right time, to recognize who's speaking to you through certain mouths and say, Devil, get behind me. Now, I trust that nobody will take this statement and this text and go home and start calling all your friends and family the devil tonight. Now, I say that because some are so shallow and so ignorant and so unstudious that they do that kind of thing and blame it on the preacher. And our reputation goes before us, often, by that. You, I trust, no, we not, don't mean that. But I tell you, you better have a holy sense of fortitude about you to know where the devil's speaking and when he's not. And he's going to speak often to people that you don't want to believe are the devil's voice. It'll rend your heart, doesn't it? One of the things the Lord taught us would be peculiar to our age. Between his first and second coming would be People in the, in the same household would become enemies because of Christ. In the Old Covenant, that did not exist. The people in the kingdom of God in the Old Covenant, the whole family were circumcised. The whole family were in. The whole family were under the same rule. The whole, there were no sons rising up opposing the kingdom. They were sons of the kingdom with privileges in the kingdom. New Covenant's different. 
Carnal relations are no guarantee of fellowship in the kingdom. In fact, often, more often than not, the Lord Jesus did not come to bring peace between daddies and sons, but a sword. And they of your own household will rise up. He was telling them that ahead of time so that when this generation developed and we began to experience this, we wouldn't be taken by surprise. Don't assume that because mom and dad are Christians that all the kids are going to be Christian automatically. Don't assume because the husband knows Jesus that his wife is going to come with him. That's not going to be typical. People are not going to be saved because their relative was saved. You're not automatically in because daddy is in. Every man for himself in this business. Everyone must repent. And if they don't, you'll find them more and more opposing those in their family who do. Because the family member who follows Christ will be a continual irritation. His whole life will be a reminder of their own sin. And they, won't, they can't stand it. They'll be stopping their ears. They'll be saying, away with this man. He does not deserve to live. That will be their spirit. You need to learn how rightly, with a proper spirit, but with courage to say, get behind me, Satan. When those whom you love and thought would understand, don't understand and would oppose your acts of obedience to Christ. And oh, they're shrewd. I'm only saying this for your own good. That church is cultic. I've never been there, but I just feel funny about it. No, I don't say that to make you laugh. It's a sad story. They don't even have the common decency to find out for themselves. They know better. I'm fully aware there are cults in this society. But these are the same people that demand the right of every individual to think for himself. Except the people that do things that bother their conscience. That stop their mouths. They would be the first to censor my mouth if they had power to do so. While claiming they have a right to be totally uncensored in everything they say. Freedom of religion unless it's Christ's religion. Brethren, if you haven't learned that yet, if you haven't figured out that's where we're headed, we are going the way of one world amalgamated religion with one exception. There's only one religion that is not acceptable. It is the unique, exclusive religion of Christ. We will allow you to believe any God and worship any way except the biblical way. And in order to deceive you, we'll even quote the Bible to defend our position. Did not the devil do this? Lord, it's only my regard for you that makes me take, say, don't you'll be crucified. I don't want this, you to be misled. You're getting a little beside yourself. That's the concern. It's tempting, isn't it? You young people, I declare to you young people, it doesn't make any difference whether your mother or daddy follow you or support you or agree with you. You must follow Christ. And you must learn to recognize in your parents if they oppose God's way, you must see the devil in it. I didn't say you need to go burn them at the stake, rebel against them, hate them, or be a rat around them. That's not what I said. That would violate plain scripture. I did say you better learn to call sin, sin, and the devil, the devil, and not be so naive as to think it's impossible that someone that's in your flesh and blood could be the devil's mouthpiece. The multitudes the devil used to tempt the Lord. 
Remember in John chapter 6 when he multiplied the loaves and fed them? They were going to make him a king. Remember? This guy is got to be the Messiah. And when the Lord perceived that they were going to make him a king, he left and departed and wouldn't allow it. But they would make him a king prematurely for the wrong reasons on the wrong terms. The devil was in that to tempt. You say, well, Jesus didn't feel the temptation. I dare say he did. He was in all points tempted like as like we, yet without sin. He felt the weight. Don't tell me his body didn't want to eat bread. Don't tell me there wasn't an allure. Don't tell me that this bitter pill of Calvary was a nice, sweet feeling to his heart. Don't tell me that the things we've enumerated that surrounded that hour were things that in themselves he loved and delighted in. Despise the shame, we're told. The devil tempts him. His own family, in John chapter 7, are trying to get him out away from the crowd so they can reason with him a bit. He has to say in one case, they say your mother and your brethren are outside calling for you. And how does he respond? Who are my mother and brethren? I want to know who are my real mother and brethren are. They are those that believe in him who sent me. Who do the will of God. Dear brethren, what we're speaking here is what this world will have to call cultic. We are saying that there can be no allegiance that interrupts or diminishes your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and his way. Even to the point that you will have to say, my true mother and my true father and my true brothers and my true sisters and my true children and my true parents are those in the kingdom of God. So that you let the church of Christ take even... I trust that I can say this and it won't be misconstrued. But in a sense, the church of Christ takes precedent over all other earthly affections. If it's not so, you tell me what Jesus meant when he said, He that forsakes not father or mother is not worthy of me. You tell me what that means. You call him a cultist. Or you tell me what that means. You explain to me what that means. What does it mean? If you're not ready to, he says in one passage, hate your father and mother, etc. For my sake and the gospel. You're not worthy of me. You can't be my disciple. We don't like talking about that, do we? The implications of those passages are a little frightening. Where's Pastor Allen going to go with this? I don't think I can go any further than Jesus went with it, brethren. Now, I trust there's not any children here that are going to use that and twist it as an excuse not to honor your parents. And I trust there aren't any wives and husbands going to use that as an excuse to be ungodly in your home and unloving to an unsaved spouse. But I tell you, you better have enough sense to know the difference between the devil's voice and God's voice. The Lord was tempted to avoid the path of suffering for which he came into the world through other people, many of whom were very dear and close to him. His own mother, who bore him as a virgin, he had to say, if you think that's my mother, that my mother, uh, he never forsook his obligations to her. He even took care of her future needs on the cross when he gave her over to John to take care of her. But he had never had a mixed up 
view here. No one has left houses or lands or father or mother or children for my sake and the gospel that have not both in this life received a hundredfold more of the same and in the life to come eternal life. I tell you, brethren, there are no disciples of Christ who because of their following Christ ended up having to leave homes and parents who have not got lots of mummies and daddies from the kingdom of God as a result. My children, 2,000 miles from grandparents, have lots of grandparents. Their daddy and mama have lots of mommies and daddies and brothers and sisters. Multiplied numbers. No, no telling how many of those apostles had because of their sacrifice. They lost. They left all. But how much did they gain? That's the promise of Scripture. You just better make sure you are willing to leave it all. And if they say, if you're going to do this, we're out of here, say bye. Don't start running through hoops to try to find ways to come to a compromise. Because you're compromising truth when you do it. I didn't say don't make appeals, don't make efforts. And I didn't say be stoical, but I did say you better watch out if you don't fall into this trap of trying to dialogue with those that are asking you to give up one smidgen of your commitment to Christ. The temptations directly, the temptations through others, and in the third place, the devil opposed the Lord's hour by efforts at direct violence. Turn to John 7. Verse 28. John 7, 28, Jesus therefore cried in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I came from. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They sought, therefore, to take him. That means get rid of him, kill him. And no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour was not come. Now what was the devil's effort here? To get him before the hour came. God wouldn't let them have him because his hour wasn't come. But the devil was trying to stop him by violence. Chapter 8 of John, verse 20. Again, these words spake he in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man took him. Not because they didn't want to. Not because they weren't plotting. That was their desire. But they couldn't. They didn't. Because his hour was not yet come. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 4. Verse 28. You're familiar with this account. Oh, what a picture. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see this picture repeated. If you just read through the book of Acts, you'll see it so often that it'll break your heart. In many of the parables of Christ, this picture is displayed. In fact, as we heard Pastor Martin on the radio on the way to church this morning, in speaking of one of the parables, he was opening up this principle of how the Jewish nation, as a nation, all except for the elect remnant of Israel, continued to despise God's word and law and mistreat the prophets and finally his son 
And here's this picture. As the Lord began to expound in the, in the synagogue of Nazareth, the things concerning him, himself written in Isaiah 61, they are saying as he's preaching, what wonderful words. And they are feeling the weight of Messiah among them. They're beginning to think this really is our Messiah. And they're thrilled. They love it. And then the Lord drops a bomb on them. He says in verse 24, No prophet is acceptable in his own country. But of a truth I say to you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now I'm in chapter 4, verse 25. There were many widows in Israel. In Elijah's day, when the heaven was shut up, three years and six months, when there came a great famine. And verse 26, To none of them was Elijah sent, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. He went to some non-Jew and worked a miracle. And in verse 27, There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now that's in their own Bible. That's one in their scripture. He wasn't introducing some new twist here. Just reciting their own history, which they love to quote. But their hatred of truth rooted in their racial pride made them vehement. And it says in verse 28, They were all filled with wrath in the synagogue as they heard these things. Up until he mentioned Gentiles being blessed by God's grace, they were just thrilled. This is Messiah. Wonderful words. They were astonished. When he mentions the inclusion of Gentiles, they with that. And look what they did. They rose up and cast him forth out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill whereon their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. The devil rising up to thwart the hour of his cross by putting him to death earlier. But he passed into the midst of them went his way. How did he do that? His hour was not come. I don't know how he did that. It's impossible for him to be cast down headlong because he came into the world to lay down his own life. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. They can't kill me! Now, as to their motives, they were murderers. They killed the Son of God as the, the Apostle Peter and Paul say to them in the New Testament. But as to God's view, they didn't kill him. He laid his own life down. He died his own death voluntarily. He willingly gave up his own spirit. He breathed out his last voluntarily. But you see the devil trying to kill him. Tempting him directly, tempting him through others, and making efforts at violence to stop him from his hour. But you see, his hour was ordained, his hour would come. And yet Jesus is not a mere victim of fate in this hour that came, or some stoical recipient of the woes of Calvary. It's not just like he's being led through his life as a robot, because there's a fate set for him that he cannot avoid. No, indeed, in the next place we see the Lord's welcome commitment to this hour. We've observed the devil's opposition to it. Now look with me at the Lord's welcome commitment to it. There was no effort made to avoid it or escape it. And however you may interpret his request in Gethsemane, he was not 
from the heart trying to avoid the reason he came into the world. For this hour I came forth into the world. What shall I say? Take this cup from me, but for this cause I came forth. He could have remained in heaven, I believe, brethren. He could have called legions of angels to deliver him at the hour of his crisis. But if you would read Luke's gospel, you will notice at least four or five times from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and several other times until chapter 19, verse 28, we are told the Lord set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem. Everywhere he went, he had a plan. He had a little map in his heart, a little map that had an X marked on it on top of a little hill outside the town of Jerusalem. And everything he did pointed to that X, and everything he decided and every plan he made. And he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. And he said this, going toward Jerusalem. And he couldn't stay because he went to Jerusalem. Why was he going to Jerusalem? Because he welcomed this appointed hour. The hour is come, and he welcomes it. Verse 27 of John 12, don't turn, but listen closely. He says, now is my soul troubled. Now his soul is troubled because he knows the weight of this hour. But then he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. He has a self-consciousness of his commitment to this hour. I came. I've not been shoved into it. I came. There's a ready commitment of Christ to the hour. But let me ask the question. And by, by the way, you remember that even on the cross, I think in Matthew 27 it accounts, even on the cross when they offered him vinegar or wine mixed with a painkiller, gall, he refused it. Once he tasted and knew what was in it, he refused it. Later he took a drink for his thirst. He would not take the painkiller. It was a common practice for them to put on this sponge painkiller at the outset of a crucifixion to help relieve the suffering. He refused it. Why? I'm convinced that the better commentators are right. He did not want to diminish in the least the full dregs of the sufferings which he was going to drink to the bottom of the cup for our sins. No sense of withdrawal, but a ready commitment to the whole nine yards of the suffering that God had given to him and that he volunteered to. Aren't you glad that he's not like you? But what was the driving force? that made the Lord Jesus welcome and commit himself to this hour? Well, there's several things we could say. First, we could say he knew the reward of these sufferings. You remember Hebrews chapter 12? Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, despised the shame and endured the cross, and is set down at the right hand of the Father. There was something set before him by way of reward that he knew for which he was willing to suffer. A bride, a kingdom, glory. You could say that that's one of the driving forces that took him to the cross willingly and gladly. 
But you could further say, and I think more precisely, as his whole life among us displayed, that the Lord looked on heavenly things. This very prayer, and if you'll turn back to John chapter 17, displays for us this spirit and attitude of the Lord Jesus. He's thinking heavenly thoughts. Now you see, we're not surprised. It doesn't usually prick our consciences to think that Jesus is heavenly minded. You'd expect him to be heavenly minded. He came from heaven. He's going back to heaven. This is a temporary visit here. Brethren, it's a temporary visit for you too. You see, we don't think in terms of ourselves supposedly thinking heavenly. We sort of feel that we're different from him. He had, he was a man, but not like we men. Yes, he was a man as you're men. Except without sin. He's a true man without the degradation and the drain and the pollution of his iniquities. He didn't sin. But he was no less human. Don't say I sin, I'm only human. No, you're less than human when you sin. You're different. You're not human as you ought to be human. You're a sinner. And that affects your humanity. People act like beasts when they become sinners. When people become righteous, they act like people. God doesn't want you to become gods like the Mormons expect. He wants you to become men and women. That's why he made you men and women. And you'll be more men and women when you get right with God and live right than you'll ever be when you decide to go against him so you can be men and women. No, no wonder so many don't know whether they are a man or a woman in our day. They have no biblical perspective. They have no righteousness. They have no sense of who they are. How could they? But the Lord Jesus looked on heavenly things. In verse 1, he lifted his eyes to heaven. In verse 3, he speaks of giving eternal life to those that know God. He doesn't speak to those that win the Super Bowl. Those that know God. Not to those that get rich. Those that know God. His great goal in life for his people is they may know God. That's what life is. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In verse 4, he wants to glorify God. In verse 5, he remembers the glory he had with his Father before the world was. He has a perspective that goes beyond the limits of this created order. In verse 11, I am no more in the world. Even as he prayed, he's praying as though he's already in heaven seated at the right hand of the Father. By the way, one of the verses that gives a clue is that this is a prayer that expresses what he's praying now. Verse 16. These that you've given me are not of the world. Verse 17. Sanctify them. Consecrate them. Separate them from the world. Make them different. Keep them from the evil. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world physically, but I am asking you to make them live in such a way that they're not tainted by the evil of it. He's thinking heavenly things. Verse 24, he says, I will, Father, also that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. He's thinking of the, the future and the everlasting bliss of his people in glory with him there after all this is burned up. He's not limited by thinking of the destruction of Babylon. He understands what's going to happen to this world, but he looks beyond it. And he sees the glories of heaven and that motivates him and drives him. You see the point I'm making? 
He is so heavenly minded and he sees the rewards and he thinks spiritually and he thinks of eternity. That's how he can endure sufferings here. That's how you can endure sufferings here. And you get your perspectives limited on this world. The affections from people of this world, the money you can make in this world, the pleasures you can have in this world, the ease and comfort you can obtain in this world, you will lose your heavenly perspectives and you'll smart for it. The Lord had it. Behold how full he is of the Father's cause, of the Father's purpose, of the Father's glory. How ready he is to serve and to obey his Father. How longingly he pleads for his own. All the way from verse 6 to verse 26, he is praying for his people with a heavenly perspective. He's never asked. I don't know in this passage where he really ever focuses or asks that the Father makes sure they all have good jobs with a lot of money. Those are valid things to ask for. Give us this day our daily bread. But not necessarily our daily VCR. Why? Because his perspective is heavenly. We expect such from him who came from heaven, but you see, he's not only our substitute, he's also our example. It is our responsibility to look on heavenly things the way our Savior does. Set your affections on things above, not on things beneath where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is your duty to think in heavenly terms, to think of spiritual concerns. You ought to pray more for the souls of your kids than for their school system. You ought to pray for their school system because you're concerned about their souls. You ought to be more concerned about your kids being right with God than being right with their peers at school. You ought to be more concerned with your kids being smiled upon by God than having the right clothing to get the world to smile upon them. In fact, it ought to scare you to death when your kids start getting praised for their clothes instead of for their countenance. Mothers, do not sin against your daughters and dress them so they can start becoming little public peacocks. So folks will start saying, oh, what a wonderful little outfit you have. Be scared to death of that. Because they'll puff them up with pride before they're two years old. Don't make them ugly. But you be careful. Don't puff them. Don't make your little boys the object of everybody's praise. And they start, take them home. Every time they hear a little praise, take them home and put a little warning in, their, in the other ear. Do you remember the, the ending line of that m movie about General Patton as he's walking out with his little uh, bull terrier out in the desert land out there, walking out away from the little village, and he's saying... He's reminding himself of those words that were spoken into the ear of a Roman general who was coming back and endure, enjoying the triumph after a victory in war. And all the people were surrounding him and they were laying the garlands in front of him and praising him and he was the big head of everything, the glory, glory. And there was a little guy always posted to walk, run along beside the chariot and keep whispering in his ear, all glory is fleeting. Keep a heavenly perspective and save your children from losing it by getting the things of this world. But I'd say that primarily and foremost the thing that drove the Lord Jesus to the cross and made him a welcome committed one to it was that he lived for the glory of his Father. Now this text brings that to bear. It shows it. It opens it up. Look at it. Glorify now thy Son why? Not so I can feel glory, but that 
thy son may glorify thee. Even when he requested for himself, his motive was that his father be known and glorified. That they may know thee, the only true God. What a burning passion in the breast of the Lord Jesus that the world know God. And isn't that what the glory of God is? The doxology of God is the praise and the manifestation and the opening up of the name and the character and the glories and the will of God. That's what drove him. Now let me suggest to you quickly some of the reasons that God should be glorified. First of all, he deserves it. I will call upon the Lord, the psalmist says, who is worthy to be praised. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name get glory. In the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, one of those wonderful, often omitted passages when men are trying to get over to the juicy parts, they think. All the elders and those in, the, in heaven cry, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God. Worthy art thou to receive the glory and the honor and the power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they were and were created. Of the King James, for thy pleasure they were created. Worthy art thou. It is appropriate to praise God, to glorify God. To know God, for God to be revealed, because he deserves to be known. He deserves to be loved. He alone deserves to be worshipped. Him only shalt thou serve. He deserves it. We could multiply passage after passage after passage. One of the chief applications of all these series on the attributes of God is that he deserves to be glorified. After all, we've heard about who God is and what he is. Does that not elicit glorified praise from us? Even if you don't like him, you ought to praise him. Don't you stand in awe of such a God? What a dead man you are if you don't glorify this God. What a pitiful sight it is for our nation who act as though he doesn't even exist when he alone deserves all the praise and the honor and the glory and the power and the adoration of all his rational creation. He gets it from the inanimate objects. He gets it from the stars and the sun, the moon, bugs and birds. He gets so little of it from rational creatures. Brethren, what a blessed place this is this morning where rational creatures have voluntarily gathered to give praise to God. What a sad thing it is that you might have gathered in the midst of this and held back some of your praise for whatever your reason. He deserves it. Second, God ought to be glorified because his holy character and his position need to be seen by his creation. His holy character and his position. Let me enumerate some of it. First of all, he ought to be glorified because of his authority. And one of the things that is being glorified in this work of Christ is the authority of his Father. How? Well, in one way, look at this. The Lord says, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. I always do what is pleasing to my Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Why? Because the Father who sent him deserves to be obeyed. 
Why does he deserve to be obeyed? Because he's in the position of supreme authority. Now many of you labor under a mistaken notion that authority figures do not have to be obeyed. I would like to set you straight. It is the rule of authority that you obey it without question. Pastor, I don't like that because I'm being told to do things that are wrong. Don't obey sinful commandment. But you better have an attitude toward all your authorities that when they speak, you shut up, you listen, and you do what they say. And we don't have much of that in this culture or in this room. You have imbibed Jeffersonian liberty and independence to your own destruction. You think that you are so sovereign that even God's word can be questioned. I do not think that, Pastor. It's just everybody else that that bothers me, like my father and my policeman and my governor and my president and everybody else that has authority in my life. I'm going to worship God. I don't have to listen to those people. Yes, you do. If you're going to worship God, you better because he commands you to. You don't have to agree with everything they say. There is a generation that is right in its own eyes that despise their fathers and their mothers. This is it. Everything the Lord Jesus did was in obedience to and submission to his Father's will and commandment. His whole life was a glorifying of God's authority. If God the Son deemed in his highest delight to do what his Father said, does that not magnify his Father's authority? That the second person of the Trinity did not see himself as worthy of questioning a single command? There's not even a hint of that in his spirit. Well, of course, he's God. He's man, too. But if he's God and obeys his Father, how much ought you to view God's authority? Who you are not God. Christ is perfect and joyful in his obedience. He magnifies the righteousness and the propriety that all creatures should glorify God and be happy about it. You should keep his commandments and they should not be grievous because his authority as God has been shown. He has authority to be obeyed and that's glorified in Christ. He's also magnified in his holiness. The world needs to see God is holy. He's of purer eyes than to look on sin, Habakkuk says. And I tell you, there'll come a day when the artworks in Cincinnati will burn. The fact that our culture hasn't the moral fortitude or discernment to hate them doesn't change God's eye. And this country thinks nothing of God's holy eye because they don't know he's holy. He deserves to be seen to be holy so we can see how bad sin really is. God is incapable by his character and nature to endure sin with favor or to allow it to last unjudged. If you are currently in the practice of desecrating the Lord's day by replacing the responsibility of his worship by something of this world, God hates it and will bring you to account for it. You have not the right to set the rules. The book of God has set the rules. Young men, before they even know the truth very well, fall into commitments to this society. Maybe they're sports. 
And before long, when they want to be great Christians, they find that Christ's first day of the week cannot be totally honored if they're going to do what the coach says. They have a clear choice. Go to church and worship God or win a game. Or worse yet, have a coach like you because you're a team man. You may lose all of them. Little leaguers, Christian parents, didn't ask and find out that the playoffs start on Wednesday night and end and they have to practice on Sunday afternoon because they've got a Monday game. Clear choice. Baseball is not for the Lord's Day. Baseball ought not take the place of prayer meeting. And when you let it, you're telling your kids something they don't need to be hearing. You're saying that if you ever have something real important in your life, the prayer meeting can hang it. Our practice as elders in this church, and as you know, is not one in which we so violently restrict you that necessary things cannot be done on Wednesday nights. You know that's not the case here. doesn't mean that we are throwing caution to the wind, that any time there's a little inconvenience or something you've got going that's nice and interesting, that therefore train your kids that Wednesday night's sort of an option. There's not that much of an option, brethren. There's options in it, but it's not as much as some would think. Let's learn. God's holy. I just picked those two examples because they're typical of our day. See his hatred of sin and the price that he exacts for removing it. Christ's death does it not glorify God's hatred of sin. God hates sin so much that he requires the blood of his own son to remove it. How do you feel about sin? Which one of your sins have you decided is not that critical and vital and urgent and problematic and dangerous? You don't have a single sin, not the smallest, that did not require the death of the Son of God to remove it. How dare you compare sins and say that some are you can hold them a while longer because at least they're not as bad as others. When, all, when if they are the only ones you ever committed, they would have driven the Son of God to the cross in order to save you. God's faithfulness is seen in this hour of glorifying his name because he's a covenant-keeping God. He said he was going to dwell with his people in peace. And how can he do it while they're unholy? Well, he can't, so he makes them holy. How does he make them holy? He sends his Son. The hour has come that God may be glorified. His faithfulness, his holiness, his authority, his righteousness. Rather than to impugn any aspect of his holy law, God delivers his Son up to satisfy his demands rather than to lower any of the standards of his law so that some sinners could get in who couldn't have gotten in otherwise. He keeps the standard absolutely. You have to be sinless to get to heaven. All the Ten Commandments from the heart have to be obeyed perfectly, completely throughout your lifetime or you cannot go to heaven. The soul that sinned it shall die. By your works you'll be judged. There'll be no respective person. 
Every man will receive according to his, that's what the Bible teaches. What does that produce? Trembling, I trust, as you survey your multiplied sin against the holy law of God. But the Lord Jesus came into the world to come to an hour in which he would magnify the righteousness of God on the cross. How so? Because in God saving, justifying sinners and making them his own sons and daughters and being pleased to be called their God and to have fellowship with them and to dwell amidst them without shame and for God to bring them to glory and bless them with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and to grant them all the privileges of the inheritance that his own son earned and deserves. In order to do that, he lays his son's life down on the cross so that the justice of the law may be satisfied. And he takes his son's righteousness and accounts it on your ledger and contends that you are righteous because he views you as Christ's righteousness on you. And he takes your sin and judges his son as though your sin was committed by him. And his son pays and satisfies the debt of your sin and you receive the benefits of his righteousness. Because God will not change his holy law in order to save one sinner. He is righteous. God will not lower the standard he satisfies it because he loves his law. He's righteous. You can't be saved if God is not righteous because there is no way for you to be justified apart from God satisfying righteousness. If God quits being righteous and decides to let you in as a sinner without having been transformed and justified, God is no longer the God of the Bible. He cannot save you in righteousness if he is not righteous. The cross magnifies this righteousness so that he may be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. But you can see quickly how that this also magnifies his goodness. Whoever loves sinners the way the Lord Jesus and his Father love you. How good can you want God to be that rather, on the one hand, than to lower the standard of his holy law, he holds it supreme and exacts from us perfect obedience. But in order to do that, and rather than to send us to hell, he satisfies it in his Son for us. So we, who voluntarily broke his law and forfeited our rights to eternal life, may have eternal life. Does that not glorify God's goodness? Does that not make you stand in awe? That you broke the law, we wouldn't be talking about a Savior in sin if we hadn't sinned. There would be no law in Moses if we hadn't sinned because the law is made for ungodly and lawbreakers. The righteous don't even need that kind of law. We wouldn't even have our Bibles the way it is. We'd be walking straight with God. Were it not for our sin, how good is God? Whose own name requires that he punish every last vestige of the smallest of the inklings of your rotten attitude in your heart. And not let you get off with any of it. And who at the same time finds a way to save you from its penalty without having diminished one aspect of the sanctity of that law. And how did he do it? At the cost of his own son's separation from himself in sin. At the breaking of his own heart. At the sacrifice of his deserving son for the sake of his undeserving son. 
Is God good? He ought to be glorified. This world ought to know that God is good. He deserves to be known. He deserves to be comprehended in all his glory. We don't need to cover up a part of his glory. As one preacher, one of our church members visiting a church recently and heard the preacher talking about this old myth, God doesn't send anybody to hell. He does so. He casts them into the lake of fire. I will not try to protect him from his righteous wrath. I'll not try to represent his his reputation by changing it so I can get folks to like him a little better than they would if they knew him the way he really is. I'm not ashamed of him. And I have to confess to this church that years ago I think I was. What a pitiful thing it is for, for a preacher to be ashamed of some aspect of God's glory. What a pitiful thing for professing Christendom to be ashamed of aspects of God's glory. I want to draw up these applications quickly to you before I let you go. And I've, I've just run through these things so fast I'm frustrated about it in some sense. I trust that some of it settled on your heart. Let me just say these things to you first. We should never glorify the Son or the Spirit at the expense of the Father. What is he talking about? Well, there's a serious error afoot in our day of people that are Jesus only, who love to talk about Jesus, but they have a sort of a negative feeling about the Father. He's mean and austere and distant, and Jesus is our buddy down here. That's not the picture of the Scripture. You cannot glorify the Son without glorifying the Father who sent him. He is a gift of the Father. Do not put God the Father in this picture of meanness. He could not possibly be mean and send his Son to be sweet. That little baby in Bethlehem is the product of God's merciful, gracious, compassionate love. He's not one that saves us from God. He is God come to save us. Some would magnify the Spirit to the exclusion of the Father. They talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost all the time. But their concept of the Father is shady at best, and often they do not come to worship Him as God the Father. They treat Him the way they do their earthly fathers, with disdain, and they don't hear half of what He says. They don't see Him as deserving honor. Their worship services depict chaos, carnality, frivolity, because they don't see him as God the Father. Don't magnify the Son or the Spirit at the expense of the Father. The Son glorifies the Father in the, Spirit, in the Scriptures. The Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit, according to John 16, glorifies the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Father, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and other passages. The Father glorifies the Son and the Spirit. Do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the Son says, and the Father says. The Trinity glorifies one another. We must keep a good theological balance. Second, and more to the point, all our prayers should be rooted in the motive to glorify God. In other words, when we ask of God something, the answer ought to glorify him or we shouldn't ask. You see, if your motive when you pray 
is that the results of your prayers would glorify God and make him more known and make him more known and make him more known and him happy, you're going to be more prone to pray biblically. You're going to be more prone to get your prayers answered. You're going to be freed from your selfishness and your idolatry whereby you use prayer to get what you want at the expense of what God wants. Brethren, let's stop asking for things that have no particular reference to the glory of God. If you can't find a biblical reason to attach the glory of God to your request, don't ask. Now, is it to glorify God that you ask that he give you bread? Yes, God promised to feed his children. He said the righteous would never be begging bread. It would not be to his glory to starve his kids to death, so pray. Will it glorify God that he saves sinners? Then pray that he does. Will it glorify God if his word is preached in power? Then pray that it will be. Will it glorify God if he delivers you from your remaining corruptions and gives you victory and power over sin increasingly in this life? Yes, so pray that he will and keep praying. But make sure that your goal ultimately is to glorify God. That's what your Savior's goal was. Ask the question, if I get what I'm asking from God, how will it affect others' view of who he is and what he's like? If they knew that God gave it, how would they view God? As a doting granddaddy with no principles who just gives to his kids whatever they ask, without regard for their good? Or is the holy and righteous God in heaven who does all things right for the good of his people and the glory of his name? How will they respond if they know the picture? Don't be as the Israelites in Psalm 106 in the wilderness who got the desires of their heart and with it were sent leanness of soul. I trust and pray that some of you will not get some of the things you've longed to get in your lifetime. For some of you to get the salary you dreamed of getting would destroy your soul. Thank God that he hasn't let you have it yet. Don't you run past him to grab it. Don't you get in a hurry to bypass God's providential protection of your soul. I'm not pleading for voluntary poverty in this place, but I am pleading to make sure whatever you ask and whatever you want is for the glory of God. Third, we should be readily content to be put to shame to glorify God. We should be readily content to be put to shame to glorify God, or even to die to glorify God. The Lord Jesus is our example. What other cause is worthy of shame and death? but the glory of God. Did not the scriptures teach us? Doesn't our catechism teach us? What is the chief end of man? Why did God make you? I could ask the twos and the threes in here. Why did God make you? And you who know the catechism would say, for his own glory. What is the reason God put you in this world? So you, with your faith, with your hands, with your feet, with the use of your mind and your tongue and the way you make your money and spend your money and save your money and treat your kids and love your wife and your husband could glorify God. That's why you're here, mister. 
Not to become Mr. Jock. Not to look at your bulging muscles in a mirror. They're going to rot. But to glorify God. Not to advance yourself in this world. It's all going to burn. But to glorify God. And it's to the degree that you've come to agree with that, that you can claim that you've been converted and are a Christian. That's the root of the matter. Are you living for God or for somebody else? You ought to be ready to suffer shame for his glory. Makes shame all the more blessed to suffer. That they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Fourth, you ought to rejoice when others are rewarded and blessed. And it glorifies God. Even when your enemies prosper, it glorifies a God who is gracious even to the unthankful and the unholy. You should rejoice that God is so good to the wicked. He wouldn't have done anything for you if he weren't good to the wicked. We do have a tendency, don't we, to forget what it took to get us into place of blessing. And to start looking down our nose on other ungodly people and resent the fact that they're doing well. Rejoice when somebody else glorifies God in blessing or in judgment, as we read in Revelation. Rejoice when God judges. Not be glad at calamity, but rejoicing that God is glorified in it. Don't be afraid to say, For so, Father, it seems good in your sight. Yea, Father, amen. Don't be ashamed to say, I rejoice, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have done this or that. Plus or minus, positive or negative, because it glorifies you. And lastly, if we have any knowledge of the glory of God, we ought to be deeply offended at the absence of it in this world. It ought to grieve our hearts and break our hearts every time we hear an expression that blasphemes the name of our God. Not because he's our God, but because he's God. Do you know the difference? Some people get mad that somebody else blasphemes God because they're insecure about him being their God. They're not confident, and so they resent the fact somebody else has another God. That's not the purpose. But because he's God, it ought to break your heart that anybody doesn't know he's God and glorify him as God. Every expression of perversion in this society ought to melt our hearts that God's not getting the glory he's due. Men ought to praise God. All men, all women ought to praise God. It ought to melt your heart that there is an empty seat in this place. It ought to grieve us that so few, even who attend churches once in a while, so few, have any thought of glorifying God. I believe that if I could mark the most significant change in my consciousness in my lifetime of these 45 years, I would have to say that it's what happened about 10 years ago when it struck me like a bolt of lightning that the reason I'm alive is to glorify God. I was first angered that nobody had ever preached a sermon on the glory of God in my memory that I'd ever heard.
I was further grieved that I lived much of my life trying to do all kinds of things that God said do, but not for the right motive. I was in soul-winning churches where they had evangelism out our ears, but they never thought of the glory of God. That's why they cut corners and made gimmicks. They wanted souls saved at whatever expense. And it lowered the name and the righteousness of God. And it was so striking that morning in my study in Manans at 4 a.m. when it became apparent to me that the main and only reason I was made was to glorify God. And I remember going for several months with this prayer. It was so striking that, I, that I'd seen it. I was saying, Lord, if you get glory out of my death, kill me. If you get glory out of my going to hell, kill me. I've balanced that a little bit since then. I'm not afraid to ask him to spare me from his wrath. But I tell you, you better come clear with this in your mind that you're in this world to glorify God, not you. It's been the reason that I've often wondered if perhaps that was my real conversion. I could, I could make a case for that, perhaps. Some of you could, too, along those years. But I just say this, you better get that straight. It ought to break your heart that God is not the reason that most people are living in their minds and that sometimes it's not the reason you're living and perhaps you've deceived yourself in claiming to be a Christian because somebody read you the book and you quoted the prayer but you're not living as though you want God to get the glory. His righteousness is not your highest law. His reputation is not your deepest concern. May God deliver us from that sin and from our delusion. And may he be magnified in our lives, both individually and corporately in this place. May we be more like our Savior, who did everything he ever did and said everything he ever said and thought everything he ever thought, that his Father might be glorified. Let us bow. Our Father, we have in an hour and twenty minutes sought to explain something of your glory and the reason for it. And we confess that we know we've come far short. But our prayer is that you would so deal with every one of our hearts that we would not be thinking of anything else but that. And that whatever we've stuck up in the face of that to keep us from having to deal with that, that you would remove it and help us to look to you. Help us with our little children who recite the catechism to say, I'm here to glorify God. And may we be saturated with the spirit of that passage in Corinthians that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Oh God, we recognize that unless you do a great work in us, this will not come to pass. But we have hope because of your Son's death and resurrection and his intercession for us, that you will hear our cry and make us to see glad days to come as increasingly among us your glory is more known. May it be so, our God. Forgive us for holding it back. Break loose in this place and get glory to yourself. We ask through your Son, Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen.